Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss and the impact that losing a loved one to suicide can have, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. There aren't many podcast episodes that I would go as far to say that everyone should listen to, but this week's episode will really stop you in your tracks. I'm checking in with an author and mother called Leslie Roberts. Leslie is the author of A is for Alex, which documents her journey of grief and losing her son Alex to suicide. Alex took his own life when he was just 23 years old. It was two years after he was circumcised, age 21, which clinicians advised him to do to treat a medical condition he had called phimosis. Alex's suicide shatters Leslie's life and the lives of her other children. She wrote this book as a way of channeling her grief and to help any other parent who might have lost a child or might be trying to figure out how to support their living children who may have mental health difficulties. In this episode, we discuss how Alex came into the world and her journey of motherhood, the events which transpired which led to Alex's death and how she has tried to navigate life after his passing, which, as you can easily imagine, has at times been unbearably hard. This interview was one of the most difficult ones I've done on the podcast so far, but I'm so glad I did it. I hope you take as much from Leslie's story as I did. So this is how my check-in with Leslie Roberts went. Leslie Roberts, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I am very privileged that you agreed to come on this because I know this is your first ever podcast appearance. I know you don't do too much media. I hope I do a good job. How are you? How are you getting on today? Hi, Freddie. Thank you very much for welcoming me onto your podcast. I'm nervous. It's not easy to revisit such painful memories, but they're never far from the surface. Mm. But to talk about them publicly, yeah, it's a bit scary. I'm sure it is, but we'll, I'll make sure you're as comfortable as possible, Leslie. And I wanted to really make sure that we talk about the bright parts and the dark moments as well. So I wanted to make this a holistic episode about you. I wanted to make sure that we capture Alex's essence in its entirety. So without further ado, shall we start the show? This podcast is going to be all about you, Leslie, and it's nice and simple. So let's dive straight in and talk about your journey. I ask all my special guests this question first. Can you tell me about your early life, maybe teenage years, and looking back, did you have any early mental health experiences? Who's the Leslie we meet here? Well, I'm the sum, like, as we all are, I'm the sum of all of my experiences, Freddie. Good, bad, horrific. My childhood was comfortable. We lived in a detached house with my parents, two sisters. We weren't wealthy, but compared to school friends, our house was quite large. But it wasn't an especially loving home life. It was dominated by parents arguing. I think that probably taught me resilience mm. as we had to move from Cheshire to North Wales when I was 12. And so I had to make new friends, which wasn't always easy, but I did. My parents never told me they loved me. 
all were proud of me. But then again, growing up, I was born in 1964, and growing up in the 70s, you just got on with it. You certainly didn't talk about mental health. It wasn't a part of our vocabulary growing up. And I would say that my childhood taught me that I had myself really to rely on in terms of my emotional care. And that taught me, yes, resilience, but also probably sensitivity and perhaps insecurity as Mm. well. Before we dive into the book and talk all about Alex, can you first tell me about how you became a mother to all your children and what each of them and their births gave your mental health and your life, I guess? Well, motherhood was the perfect fit for me when it happened, but it was very difficult for me to become pregnant. In fact, I had an ectopic pregnancy and my fallopian tube ruptured. Obviously, I lost the pregnancy and the tube and so needed fertility treatment and had fertility drugs. And a few years later, resulted in the birth of Alex and I needed more fertility treatment. When Alex was two years, nine months, Thomas was born. And being a mum to those two little boys was the most perfect experience for me. It was as if I was, to be honest, just born to be a mum. I showered them with love. I didn't find motherhood difficult. I was very lucky. I never suffered from postnatal depression or difficulty adjusting or juggling. It was all just totally perfect, totally natural, despite, unfortunately, my first marriage ending when Thomas was eight and Alex was 11. I remarried and in the second marriage, I had my third lovely son, James, who was 10 when Alex died and is now 14. So I think probably in answer to your question, motherhood for me was just and is everything. Mm. Let's dive into the book now, as I found it such a beautiful, a heartfelt and emotional and such a wonderful encapsulation and celebration of Alex's life as well, Leslie. I want to start with a quote you write at the very start of the book and you say, for Alex, I wish I had known love and always forever, mum. So tell me first about the man Alex was as a child or as a boy, teenager and then adult. Oh, he was just perfect. You know, as I say, motherhood was just great for me and having waited for my first baby I was rewarded with a perfect little boy he was so healthy he was so placid so laid back he was easily pleased as long as he had his little as a toddler his little plastic toolkit or his plastic animals or his cars or his little tricycle his little plastic lawnmower I'm reminiscing now about his favorite toys He was just a joy. He would go down for a nap and wake up beaming. I enjoyed making him home-cooked meals. I remember mushing them all up, you know, even when he was very little. And he would just open his mouth and the spoon would go in. There was just never, nothing was difficult. Not not a fussy child. Motherhood was just, (laughs) no, he was pretty perfect, really. He was so easy. And then when Thomas came along... You know, you wonder if there'll be a little bit of jealousy. And from the very first second that he arrived at the hospital and he held Thomas in his arms and he was two years, nine months, he just adored Mm. him. There was just never a problem with Alex. He was 
a very easy to love little boy. Mm. You talk about him being perfect and Alex, like me, was left handed, as are you, Leslie. And we're quite yes. we're, we're quite yes. uncommon in society. Yeah. Now, I, I view being left handed as something to be quite proud of now. But for many children, mm. yeah. it can make them feel like they don't fit in. You know, you get called cat handed or maybe teachers can be even cruel or try and make you right right handed and stuff like that. At the most extreme end. Was that special for yes. both of you in building that mother and son bond early on? It was something that didn't really resonate particularly, I would suggest, for Alex. I think for me, it was sort of like a sneaky little, oh, that's really, (laughs) really special. You know, it's something that only Alex and I share. And in fact, none of my other sons, neither of them are are left-handed. So I suppose, yes, I might say that's true. Although for Alex, I'm not sure he would probably grin at what you've just said and probably think, oh, you know, there's mum making out we shared something extremely special that maybe he would have just taken as being just one of those things. But certainly for me, I I get where you're coming from. And yes. The line that comes up so many times in the book, Leslie, is his smile could light up a room. So tell me more about his smile and why it did light up so many rooms. Alex had an infectious grin. Of course, I would say he was handsome, he was gorgeous, but he did have an infectious grin and I'm not the only person by far who mentioned that. And we'll come on later Mm. to after his death, but after his death it was mentioned by many, many of his friends over in Canada. But yes, he had, right from being a little boy, a very happy, smiley, contented grin. None more so perhaps than when he was probably, yeah, he loved cycling. He was a lifelong keen cyclist right from his early little tricycle when he was a toddler. When he was enjoying his favourite pastimes, later skiing and sport and uh, that sort of thing, you know. But yeah, his grin was there. He only needed to look at me and there would be a wry grin. And we both know, I knew what he would mean by it. Do you know what I'm saying? Alex also had another similarity to me in that he was the lead in his primary school play. But when we spoke off air, I found out it wasn't something he gravitated to perhaps as naturally as I did as a 19.5 out of 10 extroverted child. How proud were you of him to do something which he perhaps didn't love, but was called upon to do and do well by all stretch of the imagination? Well, do you know, Freddie, I can remember that it was an evening. I can remember that evening now as if it were last night yes it was his end of primary school musical production and he hadn't spoken much about it I knew it wouldn't really be his cup of tea he was reserved he wasn't the more outgoing child his classmates all came onto the well it was in the gym actually but the parents were you know at the sides and the classmates all came into the center and they were singing and they were marvelous and There was no sign of Alex and I was disappointed. I thought he's got a a behind the sort of scenes role. I I can understand that that might have suited him better. And then all of a sudden, the children parted whilst singing The Coat of Many Colours. It was Joseph. Joseph It was Joseph, sorry. Yes, it was. And sorry, I'm a bit emotional thinking about it. Down the centre came Alex wearing the most amazing Joseph Technicolor coat, but swirling it and swishing it as his classmates were all singing. And if you know the the musical, of course, that's what Joseph does. And he swirls around with his coat. And Alex just held 
the scene in front of me so fabulously and didn't show any sign of nerves. No, it wasn't a speaking party, didn't even have to sing in doing that. But I remember the parents turning round to look at me because it, it really was centre stage. And the pride and the tears and I, I'm blessed with a very good memory and I will never, ever forget my pride in him that mm. night. And he was proud mm. as he looked at me. I knew that he was overwhelmed with pride in himself and that it was actually his special secret <laughs> that he hadn't shared with me and he knew what it would mean to me. Reading the book, Alex was clearly an adventurous an inquisitive child, Leslie. And that curiosity inspired a lot of travelling, which led to him travelling to Canada to visit the country when he was 14 and eventually led him to permanently moving there. Can you talk about his love of travelling? And did that gap across the Atlantic Ocean make it so much harder when you knew he was struggling, you know, but you couldn't drive or even walk to go and see him? We'll talk about that detail a bit later, but just initially on the on the travelling part. Alex, like me, absolutely love travelling. In the early 80s, I myself had a year out living in Geneva, actually, and loved it. And Alex always said he definitely wanted to do that. And yes, at 14, he went on a school trip and he totally fell in love with Canada. He had already been with us on a family skiing holiday to France and took to it like a duck to water. And so he always wanted to, following his A-levels, go and have a year abroad. He very much enjoyed family holidays. We went to Austria several times, one in particular actually, a holiday to Rome when Alex was 16. He was a very wise boy for his age. He was intelligent educationally at school, yes, but he was also very wise beyond his years. And when we went away when he was 16, by this time we had James who was in a buggy and Alex said, you know, rather than all go round Rome as a family together with, you know, the pushchair and the baby and can I go off on my own and explore and go on the underground system in Rome and go and visit? I promise you, Mum, you know, I'll find the best gelato shop there is. He and I had a passion for ice cream. He said, I will find the best and I'll take you back to it and the best pizzeria. And he was really into good food. And so really reluctantly, we agreed that he could. And he had the most amazing time exploring Rome. I even mentioned this in the book, actually, that he wrote about it for his GCSE English at the time when he returned and went back to school. And in fact, I quote his head teacher, who was also his English teacher in the book, who says that he still uses it today, this piece of writing Alex wrote about Rome as an exemplary piece of writing for a 16 year old. And in fact, school have a creative writing award in Alex's memory that they give to a gifted student every year. So travel and writing was probably where I thought Alex might eventually go. Mm. Of course, the distance was always painful because as you find out by reading the book, Alex's one year gap year actually became five mm. and it is actually where he died but there were regular well it was never regular enough for my liking but there were annual trips to see Alex and he would occasionally come home for a visit and 
the distance between us was geographically not pleasing to me but I could see how happy he was and the friends and the lifestyle he had it was just something he couldn't have found here Mm. and he definitely found his place there and that made me so thrilled for him you remarried after your first marriage ended Leslie like you said previously we won't go into the details of that people can read the book for themselves but Children of divorce can find having a new male figure in their life, you know, incredibly difficult. But what made Alex so special is the message he sent to his grieving stepdad after he lost his father. Can you tell me about that in as much or as little detail as you can and why it made you so proud of him? Well, I've already explained that Alex was gifted at English and an eloquent writer, so probably didn't find it too difficult to find just the perfect words to write to a grieving stepdad. He had also been very fond of Douglas, Steve's father, despite there being no blood connection. You know, they got on well. And... Yeah, the words Alex wrote were very beautiful, very moving. I know Steve was impressed by the compassion that Alex was able to find and how he perfectly captured the right words, the right tone. He was intuitive, but it wouldn't have been Alex being encouraged, I certainly didn't, for him to do the right thing and and find those words to his grieving stepdad. That, in essence, sums up Alex. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to the reason Alex took his own life, can you tell me about a two-week visit you spent with him? And there was a seaplane you and him took to Vancouver to go whale-watching on his 21st birthday because that felt quite special reading it. Did it feel special living it? Definitely. And again, you know, I can remember as if it was this morning. Yes, it was a beautiful day. Alex's 21st birthday. Well, it was July the 14th, 2015. I had gone over for a two-week visit. And during that two weeks, I'd arranged for us to have a three-day visit over his birthday to Vancouver Island, flying on a seaplane there and back, which is something that we had done the previous year with his two brothers that Alex had missed out on because he couldn't get those particular few days off work. So, yes, it was a beautiful trip. We went whale watching. We went out for a very special dinner in the evening. We had afternoon tea. It was just a really lovely time. This particular visit was just myself. So it was just Alex and me, just together. We went shopping and I remember buying him jogging gear and, you know, he dragged me around (laughs) some of the guy shops, you know, and yeah, it was special. The main reason why Alex felt compelled to take his own life, Leslie, was because he lived with a condition called phimosis, which is incredibly emasculating, I must imagine, for any man who experiences it and and full of shame because of what it is and how it affects you. Can you briefly explain it without going into too much detail and why it led to Alex choosing to go through circumcision as well? Yes, I probably should say that all of this is information that I have learned since Alex's death. I knew none of this. I did not know that Alex suffered from phimosis. In fact, until the evening of his death, when I received his email, I'd never mm. even heard of the word. In fact, it's a type 4 skin. Alex had been to his GP in Canada, who'd referred him to a surgeon. He was told that there was no other treatment possible for his condition. 
It was a routine procedure, he was told. In fact, it turned out to be anything but for Alex. He knew straight away that it had been a disaster, regretted it immediately and wrote extensively about his suffering, which again, as you know, you can read in the book. Age 21 was when he went through with the circumcision, Leslie, and it was age 23 on the 24th of November 2017 when Alex tragically took his own life two years after it. If you could, can you tell me about the events which led up to his passing that you describe in the book and your journey of grief from that point onwards? Yes, Alex had kept his suffering totally to himself. He didn't share it with me. We were close, but he didn't. Despite, in the last few months of his life, me wondering whether everything was all right with him and him reassuring me and batting away any concerns I had. No, ma'am, I'm absolutely fine. Oh, ma'am, you know, you are fussing a bit. I'm absolutely fine. And bearing in mind he was 23 and had chosen to keep that problem private. None of his friends knew anything whatsoever about what he was going through. It wasn't until the knock at the door on the Saturday evening at seven o'clock by the policeman in Cheshire that I discovered that Alex had died that day. And um, shortly thereafter, I received a very long email from Alex, which had been timed to arrive many hours after his death. He would have known that it would take hours for the foreign office to receive the news and for that to be imparted to me from London to, to Cheshire. And it was just totally horrific and devastating. Mm. You said in the book that you became mute from the shock and grief and writing became your only release from the darkness and pain engulfing me. Can you tell me about your mental health state at this point? And do you think you'd still be here without writing this book? Yes, I do think I'd still be here because I'm a mother. I'm a mum and I have two other boys. The book, well, at the time it wasn't a book, of course. I'd only just arrived in Canada. It was only two days after Alex's death. It was just my husband and myself. We had to organise the repatriation of Alex's body. I was desperate to go and see him. His friends and colleagues all wanted to meet me. I did then. But I found that apart from when I was signing forms or dealing with things I had to do or visiting the police or whatever, that I was largely mute. I just couldn't explain the agony that was in my head. And everything I wanted to say to Alex was in my head and everything I was feeling. And it just became, without even thinking, it just became totally natural to sit with my iPad on my knee and just pour it all out. My horror, my grief, it was raw, it was consuming, it was agonising. I mean, my loss was incalculable, it still is. But writing, for me, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I eat too much chocolate, but, Same. you know, for <laughs> me, my release was writing, and that developed and became the book which at that time it wasn't. Mm. You write in the book, Alex was and always will be my eldest son, my kindred spirit. He is a part of my soul and that part will always be missing. 
for any parent who has lost a child, Leslie, especially to suicide, was it important to you to, that you keep mentioning him in conversations, keep talking about him? And that book is a big part of it. A hundred percent, Freddie. Totally. Alex will always be my oldest son. He will always be my boy. I will always be his mum. I will always be proud to be his mum. And society prefers you not to mention your deceased, perhaps especially when it's a tragic loss or a suicide or your child who you aren't supposed to outlive. And I'm not the only mum of a deceased child who finds it helpful to have their child's name still brought up in conversation. I, I remember a year or two after he died, my family, not my children, my parents and, and a sister were together discussing they'd been to an art gallery and they were talking about a special car they'd seen painted and it was an Aston Martin and and I immediately said, oh, that was Alex's favourite car. He loved James Bond and Aston Martin. Oh, he would have loved mm. that, that art gallery. And you could have heard a pin drop. It was uncomfortable for everybody else. And I felt more lonely in that moment than I can almost remember ever feeling since he died. Mm. I just think people maybe don't know what to say and they don't realise how cruel it is to actually divert the conversation from the deceased. Whereas, you know, the mum really wants to keep that child's name in the conversation. And acknowledge it and um, just recognise it, yeah. Absolutely, because he's just as important as your living child mm. is to me. What I found really important in the book, Leslie, and for the mental health conversation, I think, is when you talk about Alex's death, you state very clearly that Alex did not commit suicide. He tragically died by suicide. There's a lot of people who still use the term commit suicide, and there's some very well-meaning people as well who just don't realise the kind of historical context behind it. So can you tell the listeners why that term is harmful and why it is, I think, no longer needed to be used? You're right. I mean, I should qualify this by saying that I have spoken to other parents who have lost a child to suicide. And there is a scale of acceptability of using that word. And I'm somewhere in the middle, but I have spoken to other parents who say that that word really, really upsets them to say commit. It doesn't, especially to me. However, I did write about this, actually, in my book, and if I may, I'll, I'll just read you this passage that I, I've written, because uh, if I don't read it, I've forgotten Of course, it. go ahead. In Victorian times, suicide was indeed considered a crime, and in the UK, it was not until the Crimes Act 1958 that suicide ceased officially to be an illegal act. Although the criminal associations with suicide have disappeared, the phrase committed suicide is often still used and it is time we updated our terminology. My son did not commit suicide. He was a law-abiding, gentle, loving son and brother who tragically died by suicide. Alex had lost hope for a happy future for himself, and he wanted to free himself from his pain. This is a tragedy, not a crime. And yeah, that's how I feel, Freddie. It's a tragedy, not a crime. And yes, it probably is time that we stopped using that word. 
before we talk about life before Alex and life after Alex, would you split into two parts, Leslie? You write about the mental torture that you've endured over Alex's death and the feelings like you weren't able to save him. Why did you think that? Were there red flags that you didn't spot or was it something else entirely? Gosh, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? And I did have a sixth sense in the last months of Alex's life that something was wrong. We had a holiday, him, myself and my youngest, James, to Gran Canaria, actually, the year before Alex died. Tom was in Newcastle doing his finals for his degree, so he couldn't come. But we did have many conversations when James was in bed. And, you know, we talked about all sorts of things and we were close and it was loving. But I still felt that there was something Alex was holding back from me. But as I say, he reassured me that was not the case. And, you know, as mums, you adult boys, there does come a time where we have to respect, you know, when you're saying that, that you're fine. And I did have a mother's instinct. How do you explain a mother's instinct? I mean, I had nothing to go on apart from my maternal instinct. But with hindsight, the light in his gorgeous green eyes, and I, I think the light had dimmed somewhat. Six weeks before he died, I was due to be going to see him alone and uh, just for a holiday. And unfortunately, my youngest, James, had a football accident and broke his wrist in two places requiring surgery. He was only 10 at the time. And so with Alex's agreement, we postponed the trip. And in fact, just before Alex died, I was due to be going out the following week because James had had the plaster removed from his wrist. And I felt now it would be easier for me to, to leave his dad in charge and, and me to go off to see Alex, which indeed I did. But it wasn't to spend that lovely time with Alex, visiting all our favourite cafes and best gelato and our lovely walks. And it was, as I say, described so tragically in the book, it was to sit beside him as he lay in his coffin. Mm. You talk very bravely about life before Alex and life after Alex, Leslie, and particularly the funeral as well. Can you walk me through the events of that day? Because there's a few things I wanted to pick out here, which just made me cry when I read them, particularly the letters that Alex wrote to your son and his brother James. And when you were looking for the right words to put on Alex's memorial stone as well. So can you just tell me about what you feel comfortable talking about here? Yeah. As I say, when I arrived in Canada, I was desperate to get to Alex, and I did, and I sat beside him and saw him in his coffin, and that was horrific. I placed my hand in his. It was cold. I leant in to kiss him and told him how much I loved him. I cut a small lock from his hair, and I just wanted, really, to jump into the coffin with him and stay there forever. And... That precious moment will be etched in my memory until my last breath. And then fast forward a few weeks in Cheshire, the evening before his funeral, Tom, who was 20, decided that he wanted to come to see his brother. So this would be the second time I would see Alex and the first for his brother. James was too young. And Tom found it very difficult. 
and was only in the room for a, a second or two. He found it very difficult. It was excruciatingly painful, obviously. And I just wanted to stay there forever. And I do remember even asking the funeral director if we really had to go through with this, if we couldn't just, just keep him for me to visit forever. But there were two, two horrific standout moments for me, I think, the following day. Although, of course, all of it was horrific. But I'll never forget waiting for the hearse and um, looking out of the lounge window. And then it arrived and it reversed towards our drive. And the flowers I'd ordered, A-L-E-X, in blue and yellow, were beside the coffin. And he'd come home. He'd arrived home. And... I think that was probably the most horrific, one of the most horrific, there were a few, I'll be honest, but one of the most horrific moments of my life because without the coffin, without the hearse, perhaps it wasn't really going to happen. And yet now it was. And the second very horrific moment for me was at the end well seeing his little brother crying on the front pew of the church next to me and his dad and Tom was something no 10 year old little boy should ever have to go through but the second most dreadful moment was at the end of the crematorium actually when the voil descended on the coffin and it was slipping away from the side and um, I remember crying out and, and putting my arm out and saying Alex I want Alex and I was I could hear myself just repeating I want Alex I want Alex and I was becoming probably a bit hysterical mm. but just saying the same thing and we had the most amazing funeral director who actually I'm still in touch with to this day, a lovely man. And he was fabulous and he knew exactly what to say. And he just said, I know, Leslie, I know. And that's all I needed to calm me down. I couldn't have Alex and I didn't want anyone telling me I couldn't have him. For him just to say, I know. Sorry, just give me a second. Um, when you were looking for the words to put on Alex's memorial stone, Leslie, you found a poem called Look For Me in Rainbows, which you adapted with Alex's last words to you. It, could you tell the listeners what that said as well? Yes, I have a memorial stone in our garden with forget-me-nots and various lovely flowers and shrubs around it. And on the memorial stone, I've written 
following. Time for me to go now. I won't say goodbye. Look for me in rainbows, way up in the sky. Every waking moment and all your whole life through. Just look for me and love me, as you know I loved you. Just wish me to be near you, and I'll be there with you. Love always and forever, with three kisses. And the reason I put love always and forever at the bottom was because those were Alex's last words to me. And you asked me about James yeah. and the letter that Alex wrote to him. And I hope you won't mind me saying that I obviously asked my boys and Tom asked me to keep his letter of private. Course, yeah. But I will read you what Alex wrote to James. Wherever you are, wherever I am, remember Alex loves you. You should not be sad because I love you so much forever. Whenever you see the brightest star in the sky, remember it is me watching you and I will always be with you. Well, this is the most I've cried on a podcast, so you've, you've, you've broken the record for that. <laughs> sorry, Freddie. <laughs> oh, um, sorry. Um, after the funeral, Leslie you scattered Alex's ashes. What was that like to do as a family together? Oh. Another horrific task. And um, it was his birthday. It was, um, you know, seven or eight months after he died, we'd flown back to Canada. When he died, I knew immediately what Alex would have wanted to happen to his ashes. He wasn't religious and um, I just knew and I, I um, Tom has been and was at the time the most incredible strength to me. I honestly don't think I would have got through this without Tom. But I asked Tom, I said, Tom, I want you to decide what we do with your brother's ashes. And I don't want to influence you at all. I don't want you to decide when we do it and where we do it. And he took a moment to think and he said, well, if you can wait that long, Mum, I think we should wait till next summer and do it on his birthday. And that was exactly what I had thought. And I said, where, Tom? And he said, that's only one place, isn't the Mum? his favourite mountain in Canada where he lived and skied and spent his happiest times and took us back many times and skied with Tom and I on that mountain. So independently of each other, Tom and I came up with exactly the same. And so the flights were booked and yes, the, um, the ashes, it was arranged, you know, we, we would take them to his favourite mountain and I write in the book about the probably single most odd 
thing that has ever happened to my husband and I. And we were packing the car that morning, many bags, as you know, as you mm. do. We were going to scatter the ashes in Canada. We were going to meet Alex's friends for lunch on the day we did this, on his what would have been his birthday. And we were then going to have 10 days or so in, in California, just the four of us. And as we were putting all the bags in the hall and the car boot was out, reversed on the drive and... You know, the boys were just, as kids do, you know, they were, um, oh, what were they? Yeah, 10 and 20 at the time, 10 and 21, gathering their own rucksack with their own bits for the flight. And then out of nowhere, nowhere, Steve and I were just standing in the hallway and James, who was just short of his 11th birthday, just walked into the hall, picked up one bag and put it in the car boot. And I hadn't said a word to the boys which bag contained Alex's ashes and it was that bag and if Alex could have planned it in any way the moment his earthly remains left our home were carried out by his baby brother And then scattering the ashes on his birthday in Canada was, again, we had special dispensation from the owners of the mountain to do so. Um, you know, we, we took a, a cable car to the top and then were driven even further in a four by four vehicle. And Steve scattered some and then he stood back and let Tom, myself and James do the most part. And um, we linked, linked arms, the three of us. And um, it was a very, very beautiful space. And it was summertime and it was a stunning day with the most beautiful blue, bright blue sky. And um, we said goodbye. And... Um, It was, I'm not sure I can actually find the words, but it felt like the right place. Except nothing was right about it, really. And we were just totally, totally heartbroken. But we think he would have, we, we like to think he would have approved of that. A lot of authors might not have done this Leslie but you made the incredibly difficult decision to include the full suicide note that Alex wrote when he died and put it in the book and this was one of the many moments not just on this podcast where I've been brought to tears why did you decide to include it in truth because Alex instructed me right. <laughs> when, <laughs> uh, he'd, he would grin at that written across his suicide note was my words are only to be reproduced in their entirety and I think that's because he wanted the whole um, 
he didn't want snippets taken out and used in sensational yeah, sure. headlines or anything whatsoever that you know like that so it was partly Alex's instruction and partly that you know writing the book was my way of incorporating Alex's last request of me as his mum and in the letter he left to me that I received the night he died he said mum if it's possible can you publicize my words so that others can be helped and he was far more eloquent than me and so there's no way I could have tampered with those words they were his and it was his story alone to share and I I haven't and it was honouring really what Alex wanted and I am beyond proud that his words are being used in medical circles, in medical training situations with new, I heard of a, a new university course, a GP in practice, you know, in training and these words are being used because so many have gone into the medical profession and been taught that circumcision is a totally routine procedure. There are very few risks, as Alex was told himself. And in fact, tragically, I now know from so many other men who've written to me that that is not necessarily the case at all. It is a far more horrific result that you can have. Alex was not alone, in other words. In fact, I was very proud that Alex's words were quoted in the New Yorker newspaper by um, a writer called Gary Steingart. And others are beginning to quote, listen, read Alex's words, and it makes me proud. What struck me reading the letter and people can go and read it in full i'm not going to read out some of the quotes because they're too painful for me to even read out on this podcast leslie yeah was that even yeah. on the brink of death he pocketed the letter with gallows humor about donating his body to science and wanting a new penis um it felt like his yeah. very soul was trying desperately to give himself life at the point that his mind wanted it to be extinguished is that how it felt to you For me, it was Alex's, he had an irrepressible wit and that comment was his wit shining through. It was typically thoughtful and generous of Alex that he wanted his organs donated to someone to whom he could give life. Um, and the perhaps not my penis comment was his wit. Mm. He was very, very dry, witty. You write after his death that you suffered from nightmares in which Alex is calling to you in need. Sometimes he is drowning and, and you're not there to save him. And I've had similar nightmares when it comes to being bullied in school through PTSD. Is that something that you've explored that is in relation to your grief? I had counselling. I had a very good counsellor that I found about four months after Alex's death. Um... I've had nightmares for quite some time uh, since he died. I've always been quite anxious since he even went to live in Canada. And I guess it's just 
off the back of anxiety and fear and yes obviously since he died I desperately want to go back and rewrite the narrative that he isn't dead and he's calling for me for help and I swoop in and save him and I have nightmares about that because I didn't I didn't know and I didn't save him Before we talk in depth about recovery, you talk about a trope of grief, which I've spoken about with many guests on this podcast, Leslie, which is the proverbial ticking clock people put on you. So can you explain that trope and how that grief has made you, in a positive sense perhaps, filter out and remove those fake friends who put that pressure on you? Yes, I certainly had to sometimes maybe a bit sharply but educate a few people close mm. to me who were almost it felt like bullying me to deal with my grief in the fashion that they expected and to move on and to move forward and it. gosh yeah. you're still yeah. crying yeah. you're still yeah I had I had one close relative in particular that meant well but was actually causing me more harm and she was right I wasn't moving forwards and I wasn't moving on. I'll never move on anyway but I wasn't even moving forwards and even now you know Alex's death does I suppose it does dominate my life but of course that's interspersed with being a mum to my mm -hmm. other boys as well but yes for your very own survival you do have to work out those people that are really helping you and those that really are not. And I certainly had mm. a few fake friends. I had one very close friend who disappeared shortly after the funeral and a close relative as well. But it's, to be honest, Freddie, it's more truthful to say that they ditched me rather than the other way around. Mm. You know, you do learn who your friends are when the bottom falls out of your world. Mm. And as I say in my book, your eyes see what they always saw but failed to really see. Mm. And maybe in some instances, certainly with relation to the friend, it was no great surprise. It was a bit of a one-sided friendship and, and I perhaps knew that. But you never really know who's going to be there until the worst happens. And, you know, you learn who is more of a drain, perhaps a bit more selfish than you'd hoped and when your heart is totally broken you desperately don't want more pain you don't want to be abandoned you need care and love and kindness and that wasn't my journey that wasn't from the people that were very close and obviously don't mean my husband and my sons but there were, there were a few relatives that perhaps could have and should have stepped up and they didn't. You spoke earlier about recovery and getting a therapist, Leslie, and I want to talk in depth now about recovery because like you said, the pain will never leave you, but you've worked so hard to get to a place of acceptance with it through professional support and obviously through the book. Can I ask you first about the quote from Winnie the Pooh, which you got framed to help you get through each day? Yes. If ever there is a tomorrow when we're not together, there is something you must always remember. You are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. But the most important thing is, even if we're apart, I'll always be with you. 
And that resonates with me because I can't tell you how I know. But I know for certain that Alex is with me. You moved back to your home country of Wales, Leslie, after Alex's death, as your other son needed a smaller school so he could be better supported. The ocean has been a big help for you in the place you moved to. Why is that? I think that the, um, I mean, I grew up here in North Wales, and so the ocean maybe has always or off, you know, been a part of my life. Walking beside it every day brings me an inner peace that I haven't been able to find anywhere else. It's so soothing, so calming, immersing yourself in nature when you are grief-stricken. You know, to watch the seals romping in the sea. And my very favourite thing is to be there when there's nobody else around or in the winter without the holidaymakers or straight after the, the school run in the morning. It's always pretty quiet, you know. And I talk to Alex. I feel very close to him. I, I might cry. I might ask his advice about something. I... I generally know what he'd say about something. I can see his shining eyes. Yes, back to that lovely grin. I can see it as I'm walking along. I I feel comforted. The sea's so powerful, isn't it? It's so so constant and yet it's ever changing. Some days it's you know, it's majestic and it's rough and and you know the crashing waves and but I love it just as much then as on a, a calm day and Yes, it is my special place to feel very close to Alex. As life moves on, grief can be obviously incredibly difficult to navigate on a day-to-day basis. But how do you navigate the reminders of his death? So I'm thinking the milestones, his birthday or anything else that you found difficult. Do you know, Freddie, I'd love to come up with something really wise and impressive to say to you to that question. But I would be fudging it. If I'm going to answer that question really honestly, I'd have to say I haven't found a way to get through those special milestone days in a way that brings me any form of peace, Mm. really. I would have to say that those special days like many, many others, are dominated by a totally broken heart. And yes, I would still do my coastal walk. So that would be the time for me to be with Alex on, yes, it might be his birthday. It might be, you know, and it it can be a sea anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be here. It, It can be away. But as long as I'm by the sea... But the heartbreak, the tears, the memories, the what-ifs, the guilt, I didn't save him, my love for him, it all goes on and it's there those days just like Mm. others. There's a concept in the book you write about called Viloma, which has allowed you to articulate the indescribable horror that losing a child has on a parent. What does it mean and, and how did it help you? Yeah, when I was doing a bit of research for my book, I came across this word because I was wondering, what, what am I? 
And it's a word phyloma from the Indian Sanskrit, which is the world's oldest language. And it's the sacred language of Hinduism, actually, from which it's believed all others have originated. And it means against the order, which, of course, outliving your child is. And it helped me by knowing that since ancient times, Mothers have lost their children. And yes, there is even this word for it. And tragically, it does happen to some of us. It always has. And it always will. And we have to learn to live with the pain of that loss. We spoke earlier about you wishing people would acknowledge Alex more in those conversations where they might feel uncomfortable Leslie and Simon Thomas is a presenter who lost his wife to cancer and he was talking about this idea with his therapist once and his therapist said there is only so long people can stare at your pain and support you without finding it too painful themselves but despite that yeah what are the right things that the listeners can know to say or do for a parent they may know who has lost a child to suicide or just grief in general and what are the wrong things to say well, obviously, this list is very personal to me and there will be many bereaved parents who perhaps can relate to some of them and others who think, hmm, that's not necessarily how I feel. So if I may, I'll refer to a few points I, I've drawn out of mm -hmm. my book at this point. I think the very main thing that I would say is don't worry about saying the wrong thing because sometimes you will get it wrong. But saying something is so much braver than saying nothing. It's so wounding to avoid the bereaved mum. It's isolating enough to have lost your child. So don't avoid them. And let the bereaved, in my case mum, talk about their child. Because, you know, you only have to listen for such a short time. Maybe for a few minutes, maybe half an hour, maybe a cup of tea. But... They have to live with that loss forever. So if you can just offer them a few minutes comfort, then that doesn't seem to me too much to mm. ask. And don't offer advice. Don't say time heals because it doesn't. Time actually has made it much worse for me, I would say, in that, yes, the shock wears off, but never entirely, actually. And of course, I'm only four years and two months into this grief journey. But time has meant it's longer since I was with my beloved son. Since, I mean, he was six foot two. He was handsome. He was gorgeous. He enveloped me in his arms whenever we were together when he saw me. And it's now four years and two months since that can no longer ever happen. So, you know... Don't say time heals, because it doesn't. It's eternal. And don't impose, and we've mentioned this before, but don't impose your timeline on someone else's grief. You know, some people need more time than others, and grief will never remove itself from my life. And, you know, maybe send a little note or a little gift or make a cake or take them out for an hour on a birthday or a special date for the parent of a deceased child because that is such a kind thing to do and, and you know won't be forgotten mm. and 
I treasure all of the cards I received, the sympathy cards, when Alex died. They are very important to me. But on that, one thing I would say is maybe don't write your number and say something like, please call me if you need me, because I never did. And I don't know what I need. I just need for my son not to be dead. So I won't call mm. you. And, you know, if you make a promise, follow through on it. My little 10-year-old was grieving and, you know, there was a school mum who said, oh, I must, you know, he must come round and must this, must that, and I'll be there for you. And never heard from her again after that initial contact. And yet others were so lovely. And so I guess you get used to both when you're deranged with grief, but the avoidance is definitely excruciating and it does exacerbate the darkness. Mm. And, you know, I had no choice that my son died, but you did have a choice to be a kind support and you chose not to be. And I would say that to a few people that were unkind. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll never know how you would act if your child died. So don't judge them. Don't judge their grief. And, you know, probably the worst thing anyone had said to me was that my wonderful son was in a better place. Well, that's not where I want him to be. It's not. It's not a better place. I don't want him to be dead. I want him to be here. When it comes to moving forward with your life, Leslie, you write in the book, in accepting my grief and loss, I'm gradually healing. I'm never going to return to who I was before, but I'm very slowly feeling grateful to have been Alex's mum. So who's the Leslie we meet here then? I think I'm really strong in being able to still see the beauty in nature, still see the joy in life. I know I'm lucky I've never suffered from depression. I'm suffering from heartbreak and grief, but it is very different. I, I do understand that. I do know people who've often had a black cloud descend on them for no real reason, and, and that's awful, and, you know, I feel for them. So I think I am strong. It's very important to me to be the best mum I can be to Alex's brothers and not only for them but actually because I'm totally certain that that's what Alex would expect and would want of me and I do it for him actually as well to make him proud and I would like Alex to be proud of me. Um, so I am strong but I'm also weak, I'm sensitive, I'm, I'm broken to the core. I um, I'm sad, so I'm heartbroken, I'm resilient, I'm weak, and I'm strong. There's a part in the book where you write that Alex has spoken to you, not just in your dreams, Leslie, but as you navigate life when you're awake. And there's an excerpt where you imagine him saying to you, I was not yours to keep, Mum, I was mine. We will be together again when the time comes. Live your life, be the best parents, my brothers, you can be, and don't blame yourself. So have you learned to forgive yourself yet? No. No, I don't think I ever will, really, Freddie. I had a mother's instinct that something wasn't quite right. 
but I respected Alex's reassurances and thought that in going to see him the week after our last phone call that we would be able to put the worlds to right together then and I was excited about the opportunity to do that because as I say I was worried about him and in fact we all now know that that was far too late and it would be too late for me. So I, I think that the book is my focal point in anything I do regarding suicide prevention and bereavement for Alex because I know what he would be saying to me. He would be saying, I'm sorry, Mum. He would be sorry for my heartbreak and for leaving me. He would be sorry for batting away my concerns when he knew I was asking him about them. I know he'd say I'm sorry I didn't wait for your visit the week later. I know that he would be proud of me for writing my book. But he would say, and I knew this, he would say, did you have to put my face on the front <laughs> cover, Mum? He didn't really like photographs of himself. And I know that he'd say, I love you, Mum. And thank you. I know he would. And what would I say to him? Well, obviously I'd say, I'm sorry. I am sorry that I didn't swoop in, get it right and save you. I would say, I am so proud of you. I would say, I love you. And I would say, please wait for me. Uh. This isn't a visual podcast, but if you saw the visuals on this, listeners, uh, you would see that I'm in bits over over this. Um, my <laughs> face is covered in tears after that. So, um, me, me too. Yeah. Um, as a final question before we move on, Leslie, um, if you could go back and talk to the Leslie who was mute with grief after Alex's death or the Leslie who was perhaps not receiving the best support from some people in your life or the Leslie wondering whether to even write this book. What would you say to her knowing what you do now? What would Alex say? I would say to myself, when Alex died, I honestly thought that there was no way whatsoever I could live. When I first saw him in the coffin in Canada and I wanted to jump into it, I was quite convinced with, with great certainty that there's no way I would live very long. I couldn't possibly. This was just far too much for me to bear. I wasn't brave enough for this. 
So I would say to myself now, you will survive this. You will find the strength because you're a mum to Tom and James. And Alex is going to give you that strength. And you're going to make him proud. You're going to write a book. You're going to tell the truthful story, however uncomfortable it is for you. And one day you will find your peace. And I'm still searching for that. I was reading actually recently the actress um, who I, I admire, Julianne Moore, who, like me, is a fellow redhead. And she said something like, you have to do the things that scare you and walk away from anger. And that struck me as quite powerful in my own life. I've done that in publishing my book and Freddie podcasts <laughs> like this uh, and the speeches I have done. And uh, as you know, I, I do get really nervous <laughs> and public speaking and uh, laying out my grief for anyone else to perhaps hear. But yes, I, I, I'm certain that Alex would say to me, I'm proud of you, Mum. I think he would be. In fact, I know he would be. Thank you. I know that that's very nice to hear. And my lovely, wonderful son, middle son, Tom, currently in New Zealand, is often sends me little messages saying, you can do this, Mum. I'm proud of you. And Alex would be too. And perhaps in answer to your question, when you say, what gives you the strength? How do you keep going? It's knowing that... Alex would be, and as, as Tom says, proud of me. We have come to our final topic of conversation, Leslie, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. I don't imagine I'll cry quite so much on this topic as I did on the last one, but you never know. <laughs> so firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Well, you know, there's days when it is more fragile than others. There are parts of every single day. I don't sleep terribly well. So there are parts of every single day where James is at school and I've got my me time and it's, yes, generally beside the sea and I might have a little cry and feel lonely. And then I get the strength to get on with my day. And so my mental health now is... I guess it's it's okay mm. it's you know it's ever changing it depends on yeah, the moment sure. in the day you know I come home from the school run see photographs of Alex and you know it's mm. hard it's hard living with heartbreak mm. but you do it you learn learn to live with mm. it what age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health that's um, quite a hard question for me to answer because I'm a child of the 60s and 70s and, and as I said earlier, Freddie, mental health wasn't just wasn't a, wasn't a thing. wasn't a thing in the early noughties, let alone the Not... 60s and 70s. Oh, okay, <laughs> right. Well it, well, it definitely wasn't for me in my family and, and my age bracket at mm. all. I would probably say when my older two boys, I hadn't had James, so when they were 8 and 11 and I got divorced, I knew that I was struggling mm. a little bit mentally but it was 
You know, it wasn't anything massive, but I think divorce throws up all sorts of issues, perhaps that I'd had since childhood, namely insecurity, and, and it probably stemmed from them. So, yes, I'd probably say, you know, I was, a, I was about 40 when maybe I started to think about there's no right age or correct age either. I was 18, but lo loads of people have said to me different ages. So yeah, it's a very broad, it's a very yeah, broad question. Yeah. Can you also tell me yeah. about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What impact did it have? And how do you look back on it? Did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant, normal and easy to do? Well, actually, it was... A short period of counselling I sought out at the time of my divorce. Feelings of worthlessness and guilt because I had two little boys. And so the counselling helped with the lack of security that I felt I hadn't had and probably enabled me to see that whilst I was going through a difficult time. The positive, I think, that I allowed myself to believe and to see was that my mothering, my parenting had given my boys, if nothing else, and if they were also about to go through a difficult time, but if nothing else, they knew without any doubt whatsoever and always did and how much I loved them, how proud I was of them, how special they were to me. And in fact, that reminds me of my very last conversation with Alex, which was six days before he died. And as usual, you know, I told him how much I loved him, how much I, well, as you know, I was due to be seeing him, visiting him in Canada the following mm. week. And so counselling made me at that time see clearly that not everything was wrong in my life, that I was a mum, that, as I say, who was perfect and I wasn't, but my boys knew how much they were mm. loved. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be a certain social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think for me, it is related in, in its entirety, really, to not feeling... I'm not saying I wasn't loved as a child, but certainly my parents never, ever would say, mm. I, I love you or I'm proud of you. And so I think that feeling brings about a certain insecurity as an adult. And my daily, if you like, struggle with my mental health would primarily be related to the heartbreak of losing Alex against a backdrop of perhaps not feeling good mm. enough. So they both kind of live beside each other in my mm. head. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better outside of or including the ocean? Which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I probably rely a little bit too much on chocolate. <laughs> it's my Achilles um, heel as well. <laughs> can make me feel a bit mm. better as you know yes walking definitely does being out in all weather definitely does it doesn't have to be a lovely day it can be a cloudy windy cold frosty snowy whatever day so the outdoors probably more more and more as i've got older is important to my mental health 
I think probably, uh, and this has been very difficult, but eliminating certain people around mm -hmm. me that make me feel much worse mm. because I have got such a massive heartbreak to live with every single day, every night, 24-7, that I unfortunately don't have room in my mental health to take any more pain on board, no matter who that is. Obviously, I don't mean my children, you know, my husband, but outside of that, unkindness, unhelpful comments, I just can't... I have to control mm. that in order to survive for my children. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible that you've read for your mental health, Leslie? Now, it could be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm always reading. I've always got my head in a book. And so I could probably mention a few, actually. I very much enjoy might be the wrong word to say that I like to read about the war. Edith Egger wrote The Choice, and that was very moving. Probably a book that most definitely resonated with me was by Eddie Yaku, who was an Auschwitz survivor who died actually last autumn, age 101. And he wrote The Happiest Man on Earth. And he talks of, despite his horrific suffering that you can't possibly compare to anything, can you? But he talks of, yet yeah, still having love, kindness and gratefulness. And I've, I have learned from him. You know, he said if he could have one more hour and survive one more day, then tomorrow would come. And there have been many times when I've been at my absolute lowest, when despite my love for Alex's brothers, I've wondered how I was going to survive another hour. But when you read things like that, and you think, well, he did, and he found the ability, he dug deep, and the horrors that he endured, he still managed to have a happy life. And, you know, for every cruel person in the world, and there is a kind one, and... In fact, I have a quote here that he wrote. He says, with a simple act of kindness, you can save another from despair. And this might just save their life. Kindness is the greatest wealth of all. And they're powerful words, mm. really powerful. And, you know, there's a few quotes from a few favourite books I've just um, jotted down here. But that lovely book by Charlie Maxey, The Boy, yes. the Mole, and, and the Fox and the Horse. Yeah. I had a previous guest recommend when I bought it for my nephews when they get old enough oh, to read it. You know, it's yeah. just fabulous. And what do you want to be when you grow up? Kind, says the boy. And Tom gave me um, a book by the Dalai Lama when Alex died. And it, it is a fascinating book, actually. And it says, you know, and I quote this in my book, he wrote, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. And I found this very moving as well, actually. It was a book by Anthony Ray Hinton, The Sun Does Shine. And he writes about living on death row and is eventually released and exonerated. But he says, there's no way to know the exact second your life changes forever. You can only begin to know that moment by looking in the rear view mirror. And trust me when I tell you that you never, ever see it coming.
and that's absolutely what happened to me in losing Alex. And as a final question, Leslie, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? That's a really good question, Freddie. Um, You know, we know that over three quarters of men are unable to talk about their problems. And I would suspect that number is even higher if, like Alex, your problems were of a personal or a sexual nature. And like Alex, perhaps especially if you are quite a reserved young man. And um, this is changing. And I think podcasts like yours are, are so important because unlike us girls, I don't think men are conditioned to share their feelings and anxieties. And, you know, I only wish with all my heart that my darling Alex had shared his pain with me or any of his friends because because there was so much love for him. At the risk of crying for another 15 minutes, uh, I'm going to end the podcast there and say Leslie Roberts it has been one of the privileges of my life to share your story to share Alex's story on the Just Checking podcast thank you so much for coming on and talking to me thank you very much Freddie wow well I think that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking podcast I want to say A massive thank you to Leslie for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. Please go and buy A for Alex. It has had a massive impact on me, as I'm sure this podcast has had for you listeners who have gotten this far. It's one that every parent, teacher and child should read to understand just how traumatic suicide grief can be on the people who experience it. My story shares so many similarities with Alex's, to be fair. I could have died where Alex did. Use Leslie's story to stop any other men and boys you know from experiencing the same fate. I'll sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, give this a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or go to our Patreon, that's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe, that is in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to